Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox, and welcome to The Grizzly Beat. Today we're sharing the second part of an interview with Dr. Jesse Logan, a climate expert, forest ecologist, and outdoorsman extraordinaire. In the second part, Dr. Logan will share stories of an interesting career working for the federal government on climate change during the hostile Bush administration. Yet his passion for wilderness and wildlife never dimmed. So the grizzly has long intrigued us for a lot of reasons, and, and one, I think, is because they have provided a window into the larger ecological world, um, the world of enormous bison and down to tiny bugs such as the mountain pine beetle and or the bark beetle. And Jesse, you are a world-renowned expert on the bark beetle. What do you think is the most amazing thing about the bark beetle? <laughs> yeah, cool question. Uh, that that this little, you know, the the uh, mountain pine beetle, which is the critter that's involved in this, would easily fit on your little fingernail, even if you have small, you know, fingers. So it's this tiny organism, and a tree. A uh, pine tree is not simply waiting for the coup de grace. You know, over the millennia, they have uh, evolved uh, efficient in, in cases, some cases, uh, defense mechanisms against this beetle. So this, this whole complex coevolutionary game that has played out that allows these beetles to kill a very dangerous host. And they're, they're predators. Uh, most Insects, most pests are parasites. They don't actually kill the plant. They'll eat a part of it. But the beetle has to kill the tree to successfully reproduce. And how this story has evolved over the years is fascinating. You know, it's, uh, it's a great story. And uh, as, a, as an aside uh, to this story, this coevolutionary game of beetle attack and tree defenses, because white bark has adopted this strategy not of competition but escape to these very harsh environments, these high elevation, uh, really inhospitable places that white bark uh, lives and is found, they've largely avoided uh, the beetle, and they haven't evolved uh, in as nearly an effective defense mechanism as some trees, like lodgepole pine. Lodgepole has a whole suite of resin responses that are, uh, in some cases, actually toxic to the beetle. And these are much less developed in white bark. In fact, white bark is uh, not only are they not well defended, their, de their resin uh, composition is exactly backwards. It's high in the compounds that the beetle uses for its pheromone communication system, and it's low in the compounds that are actually toxic to the beetle. So it's an interesting story. It's fascinating. These whole coevolutionary games are really cool and interesting. And it also opens up this avenue for research 
to better understand the resin capacity of white bark and how we might be able to uh, effectively increase the ability of the tree to defend itself. So, Jesse, you were a researcher on climate change with the federal government at a very interesting time when G.W. Bush was in the White House and the Koch brothers were busy spending massive amounts of money to deny the existence of climate change. What exactly were you doing then, and what was your experience like? Well, you know, you could answer in a word. It wasn't good. But it's, it's really a more uh, interesting, maybe, and complex story of that. First of all, you know, I am really proud of the work, uh, the part of my career in the public sector. And that includes both uh, the military. I was drafted back in the Vietnam War. And then about half of my career I worked for the Forest Service. So uh, particularly uh, working in the public sector with the Forest Service, uh, you know, this whole concept of public lands is really uniquely American, uniquely in the world. We were the first to come up with the idea of a national park. And as uh, really pretty much a direct spinoff of Yellowstone National Park, uh, large areas around the park were designated at that time as forest reserves and uh, became the, uh, you know, the national forest uh, system. So I... And that's under attack right now. Uh, it, it's our legacy that's being squandered or is at least potentially in danger of being squandered. So I'm quite proud of, of my public service. But, you know, does that mean that I uh, was in favor of the, of the Vietnam War? I think everything the Forest Service uh, or the federal government does is right and in the best interest of the resource. Uh, of course not. And uh, so with that, uh, that's, you know, sort of, again, personal bias. When I uh, went to work for the Forest Service in 1992, the chief was Dale Robertson, who was soon replaced mm -hmm. by Jack Ward Thomas with the Clinton election. And Jack Ward Thomas was really a progressive chief. Uh, you know, he's the mm -hmm. first chief that uh, that came in from the research branch of the Forest Service. But it also set somewhat of a uh, dangerous precedent. He was the first political appointment. Typically, mm -hmm. the chiefs of the Forest Service had come up through the ranks, so to speak, and uh, Clinton appointed uh, Jack as a political appointment. But he's, you know, he's he's a good man, very progressive in his thinking. Mm -hmm. He also wasn't much of a politician, and I think, you know, the, the <laughs> facts of life in Washington, D.C. beating him down, and he lasted only three years. Mike Dombach uh, came in after, after mm -hmm. Jack and also a uh, very progressive uh, uh, thinking as far as natural resources and served uh, really the remainder of Clinton's administration. And uh, when... Uh, G.W. Bush came in uh, following Clinton's lead, uh, replaced Don Beck with another political appointment, Dale Bosworth. And I think, uh, you know, basically Bosworth was uh, pretty progressive in his thoughts and a good man, but he uh, was also attuned to the political realities of the, of the Bush administration, uh, which dramatically changed 
the life for research scientists in the federal government uh, in two ways. I think the first, uh, maybe one of the most obvious, was censorship, and the second was micromanagement. Mm-hmm. And censorship has uh, has many forms. You know, it doesn't have to be direct. Uh, uh, you can have repercussions to budgets. Uh, but one of the main things that happened, there had always been a, a rule on the books in the in the Forest Service in many many you know regulations that uh, govern what you can and cannot do. It was necessary to get permission to discuss research with a journalist, for example. But that had never mm-hmm. been enforced. You know, any time I'd get a call from a journalist who was interested in my research, I'd go on and on. You know, I was happy to <laughs> do it, but. Uh, not too long after the Bush administration, it became very clear that if you didn't go through the proper channels to get approval for an interview, uh, you were going to be in big trouble, career-threatening mm. sorts of uh, trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, the level of uh, permission depended on the level of inquiry, like if you had a call from a local paper uh, reporter, uh, then uh, the, your your boss essentially at the local level could approve. But if it came from AP or something like that, then you had to get approval all the way back to the Washington office. Hmm. And they could just stonewall it. You know, a reporter calls, they say, well, I, don't, I can't give this permission. You'll have to call someone else. And it goes around and around in a circle. And you know, reporters have deadlines. Editors are on them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's difficult. There there were some reporters who stuck with it. Michelle Niehaus for, from High Country mm-hmm. News uh, stuck with it for, I don't know, six weeks probably to finally get a, a permission to go out in the field with me. And she wrote a beautiful argument. It's still one of the best uh, on white bark pine and, and what was going on. And that was really pretty early in the whole history, just as things were beginning to play out with uh, Mountain Pine Beetle. So there was this censorship. Uh, and then there was uh, micromanagement. There was a scientist on my project was working. Uh, phone rings. She picks up the phone. And uh, this voice says, hello, I'm Mark Ray. I understand <laughs> that you have a uh, uh, an interview with an AP reporter about uh, the work you're doing in climate change, I know you're going to have the right answers. <laughs> you know, so here's the Undersecretary of Agriculture <laughs> calling a flunky research, not flunky, but a, you know, a, a, yeah. a foot soldier research mm-hmm. scientist telling her what she is going to say and how she's going to say it. So mm-hmm. there was that level of micromanagement, which was really pretty amazing. It's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, 1984 sorts of scenarios, along with mm-hmm. censorship, along uh, with, uh, with the micromanagement that occurred. I said, enough's enough, and I have some other options. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I can uh, retire, so I did, as early retirement. and. Uh, in some respects, I really miss not being involved directly in science. It's a lot of fun, really uh, stimulating. But on the other hand, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the timing in a way was fortuitous. I had never been, in, uh, been able to be involved in the 2007 delisting and subsequent litigation had I been still a federal scientist. It would just, you know, that would not be compatible. So... 
Anyhow, uh, a long answer, I guess, but that's uh, kind of the way it was. So what did all this experience teach you about the intersection of politics and science? Uh, I guess the short answer is uh, it doesn't work. Uh, it's uh, by their very nature scientific endeavor and political uh, reality are incompatible. Uh, that's, that's a reason that tenure is so vitally important in the university system. There just has to be freedom of inquiry and freedom of expression. It's absolutely essential to how science works, and when you interfere with that, with a political agenda, a given-driven science, it just is not going to work. They, they truly are incompatible. And, uh, you know, some agency scientists are, uh, are successful in working around this. Typically, they're working on problems that don't have a great deal of political uh, interest, and others uh, are not. It largely depends on the uh, issue. But I think there are, are really good examples. Jim Hansen in climate research would be the one that comes to mind, mm -hmm. really. Right. And to a much lesser extent, and influence, of course, people like me that just, you know, you have enough trouble, and finally you just, when getting up in the morning to go to what had been uh, tremendously uh, rewarding and fun job becomes a, a, a chore and a burden, then you do something else. So uh, I don't think it's any, uh, you know, revelation to say science and politics is uh, oil and water. Mm. So, Jesse, you've also taken a, a really deep interest in citizen science and the ability and interest of citizens to collect data on the natural world, and including the condition of whitebark pine. So maybe you could share how you got interested in this and what kind of impact you saw. Well, I, I guess how I got interested is just a, a deep uh, commitment and concern about uh, the resource and in much larger issues, wilderness, wildness. And uh, I think for people uh, to care about something, which I hope people do care about, uh, this precious small remnant of, of wilderness and wildness we still have, uh, they have to be aware uh, to care, and it's that simple. So that, I think, is the real is the major motivation behind citizen science. You know, if you care deeply about something and you want other people to, uh, then it's really a, a natural sort of thing to do if you're a scientist. And uh, as you mentioned, I, you know, I've been involved in a lot of different ways. Even, even now, uh, although I'm not a working scientist, uh, I, I do occasionally work as a backcountry guide, and I've been involved with... Uh, with guiding and also uh, this last winter involved with a uh, Sierra Club group of veterans, uh, traumatic mm. stress recovery uh, through an experience in the backcountry. Wow. And whitebark pine, uh, touring, ski touring in whitebark pine uh, played a big role in that. And uh, I also am a uh, fishing instructor uh, in summers for Yellowstone Association, several different classes. And I all, in, in that, try and instill, you know, it's the journey that's really important. It's not about 
It, well, it is about catching fish, of course. But much, <laughs> much larger than that, it's being a part of this amazing system and gaining appreciation and, a, you know, respect and love for the resource. And that's all part of, of really what citizen science is, is about. That's the, that's the most important thing. And I've had people respond to me saying, oh, this is a life-changing experience, you know, and that's, that's really rewarding. So uh, any research information, which is entirely possible with citizen science, you can get information that stands up to the scrutiny of, you know, peer review and that sort of stuff. But that's really great. The, the important thing is to involve people in, in the resource and build this this sense of of love, respect, whatever you want to call it. So, Jesse, you've spent years of your life at this point in the wilderness, uh, skiing and hiking and fishing. What does wilderness mean to you? (laughs) Well, it's basic to my my soul, I guess. Uh, Apart from family and friends, it's probably the most influential, important part of my life, and it's been uh, it's been a, a, a constant in my life. You know, you go through phases. You do this, you do that, but uh, just this very visceral feeling of being a part of the natural world, and in particularly the Rocky Mountains and the wilderness and wildness, uh, is just very uh, is is a part of me. You know. Like I say, one of the the most important thing in my life outside of family, and uh, you know there have been uh, some some costs. I mentioned, uh, hmm. you know, leaving a job at Virginia Tech, which was by far the best job I'd ever had in my life, and I knew it at the time. Hmm. But uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you have to make hard choices. And I also was, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, was fired from my first academic position at Colorado hmm. State University. And part of the reason was, well, you care more about fishing than uh, than you do about uh, faculty <laughs> meetings. And uh, yeah, uh, and and your point is, <laughs> I remember specifically uh, that event that the, the department head had in mind, and I remember that trip in great detail, huh. and huh. The, the faculty meeting, would it, it wouldn't even be a, a footnote on the last page of it, you know. It, it, so I made the right choice, uh, and I think there, it always is tough to balance things, and it's, you know, it's just not fair. We only have one life, you know. You ought to be able to exercise all these options, but the truth is you don't, and uh, sometimes you do have to make these hard decisions, and for me, Wilderness and wildness is, uh, is is about as important as anything there is. Well, thank you, Jesse. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Jesse Logan and the Grizzly Beat. Thank you for sharing your time. <laughs> 